Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often, people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.mag breakthrough.com forward slash human. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now on to the next topic. All right, folks, uh, welcome back to another episode of the HPO podcast. Uh, Today, I have a very special guest. I'm going to do a little bit of a different intro for this one because uh, this one actually has kind of a funny backstory to it, I think. And I'm going to take you all the way back to January 16th, 1994. I was young at the time. I was, let's see, about eight years old, living in Baraboo, Wisconsin. And like all good Wisconsin residents, I was a massive Green Bay Packers fan. So I'm glued to the TV watching a playoff game with the Green Bay Packers being led by one of my childhood idols, Brett Favre. And Brett Favre needed to have a touchdown on a specific drive in that game. And he backed up into the pocket and, uh, All Packer fans, if you get them to be honest, they will admit to you when Brett Favre backs in the pocket with a game on the line, one of two things happen. We're either getting a touchdown or it's going the other direction. (laughs) And that was my introduction to our guest now, who is uh, a three-time Super Bowl champion, five-time Pro Bowl selection, and four-time first-team All-Pro. Safety for the Dallas Cowboys, Darren Woodson, welcome to the show. Man, hey, Zach, pleasure to be on the show, man. Uh, Couldn't wait. Uh, to, to have the interview, man, and uh, I'm honored, brother, so it's good to be here. And, and look, man, I'm sorry about, you know, those years, those early 90s <laughs> in which uh, we actually dominated the Packers. No, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, what are you, the story you're telling, you said your, your, your childhood idol was Brett Favre. Uh-huh. Well, I played against Brett all those years, and it was the best competition, and he is by far – that one competitor that I've always felt like, you know, I just love to play against. Is there certain, certain guys you want to play against and you can't wait? Brett was one of those guys because he was so damn good and so competitive. And the game was never over until they blew that final whistle because he always had a shot to bring him back. Yeah, you know, it was always interesting watching, watching him just because I think regardless of how well planned the game plan was, you just never really knew with him exactly yeah. what he was going to do. And I can imagine in your position too, like those type of players must bring like a really different type of a game plan to you because you have to plan for what you can expect to a degree. But when you can expect very, when you don't know what to expect, 
you kind of have to be able to be instinctive, which I think is maybe one of the things that made you such a great player in the NFL. Yeah, so hey, that's, that's a great way to, to look at it. And it, it happens not only in, in football, but in life. When the wheels fall off, man, you got to have a foundation. Whatever your foundation is, you got to go there. So, you know, for us in the early 90s, one thing we did well was block and tackle. That's the fundamentals of football, brother. If you can get back to that, you got a shot. So, you know, he always kept it off, off script, man. Never got, never on script with Brett. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll, I'll save, I'll save any more of the, the Brett Favre uh, commentary for down the road when I get him to come on the show, but <laughs> let's focus on Darren for a bit here. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to kind of back up a little bit. Cause I think uh, I, I, I love how you do your podcast. I want to make sure our listeners know about that too. Darren Woodson, you know, after your football career, you went on to ESPN for, I think it was almost like 15 years. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, like we were chatting about a bit before, you, you got into commercial real estate and, and started the Darren Woodson Show, too. So how's it been like to be a podcast host? Uh, it's been a kick in the ass, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it was, you know, when we started our podcast, my co-host, are Tyler Klutz, who played the NFL for seven years, Ben Gibbs, who's probably the better, best athlete of all three of us. And, and he's the, he, he went to ACU, Abilene Christian, tore his knee up, would have got drafted but a tremendous athlete. And the reason we started the podcast is based on the fact of, of three guys who had to make the transition from sports or professional sports or college into the real world. And we all work. I'm a partner at uh, ESRP, a commercial real estate firm. Both, both Tyler and Ben are colleagues of mine, uh, brokers within the, uh, within the business. But we were having those conversations at lunch, like, you know, how hard it was to make this transition and what applied in the locker room and and what applied in business. And, you know, how do we carry ourselves? What's, you know, the discipline we learned in in football, how it's translated into the business world. So we had all these conversations and Ben was like, hey, why why don't we just start a podcast? Let's just do this. And and the, the one thing I thought about, I didn't think about the business side of the podcast. I just thought about, I just want to talk and I want to listen to other, other people's stories. We did our first one and we did it on, on myself and it was, you know, I was just talking about myself. I didn't think anything of it. Then, then we had our first guest and I was done. I was sold. Yeah. Because it was so therapeutic. I was hearing someone else's story. Unlike I've done at ESPN all 14 years at ESPN, we never did deep dives. It was Peyton Manning's across from us. were asking him five canned questions and then he moves on. You know, the podcast is we're in depth into someone's life, whether it be successful or not successful, or we're just seeing people's lives being told. And it's amazing to hear the ups and downs. And, you know, I always felt like, you know, I came from the projects of Phoenix, Arizona. You know, I had it rough. No, no, dude. I- I'm listening to some of the people on the guests and hearing how, including yourself, Zach, how you had to overcome and the mental fortitude it took. And, and that's, it's been inspiring, man. I, I just can't tell you, I can't get enough of doing uh, that podcast. Yeah, no, it's been a fun one for me to listen to. I've, uh, I, I, as you know, I do quite a bit of running. And one way I justify that sometimes is making sure I'm, you know, getting motivation or learning something and tuning into different podcasts. So it's been, it's been cool to be able to check out yours, yours as well, when I'm out there uh, slogging away on, on, on the roads of Phoenix. So that, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that that you grew up in the west side of Phoenix, too, because I do want to kind of go back to some yeah. of the early days for you just to get an idea of like what makes uh, makes you who you are in the sense that there's a lot of times. I, I mean, I can think of things when I was like in middle school that I look back at and I was like, oh, man, if it weren't for that, who knows? I might have gone a completely different direction in life. And at the mm-hmm. time, you have no clue. But um, what was it like growing up in Phoenix and what kind of uh, brought you to the sport of football and all that stuff back then? Well, first of all, you made mention, you said, when you do a little bit of running, Zach, (laughs) a little bit of running, I I needed to make sure I I didn't just breeze by that while, you know, you, while you're listening to a thousand podcasts in your, your daily jog, but look here, you know, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona on the West side of Phoenix, um, born and raised in where we call the Henson projects, where my mother was a single mom and raised four kids. I didn't have a father figure in my life. Um, we lived in, in that, the project area for a number of years and then moved to the west side of Phoenix in the Maryville area uh, later on. But uh, 
I think my story starts with a foundation. You know, my mother was the strongest, most beautiful, and still is the most beautiful person in, in the world. And she's always been my hero. I, you know, people ask me, who do you look up to? And I always say, uh, her name is Freddie. And Freddie B was what we call her. Well, I call her mom, but everybody else called her Freddie B. But she worked two jobs, got up early in the morning, 530, um, was catching the bus or driving our old beat up Nova, uh, lime green Nova that she drove for a number of years. But she would leave early in the morning, uh, get home late at night. She worked one job at the uh, Maricopa County clerk as a clerk for 38 years. Uh, her other job were odd men jobs that she would pick up. But she she always as long as I knew my mother, she had two jobs when she was in her professional uh, career. But she just did a great job of laying the foundation. So we always had a game plan. I was the youngest of, of, uh, of four. My sister was these seven years older than me. I had an older brother who was six years older than me and then another older brother who was three years older. And what, what happened was there was always a plan. You came home from school, you either went to the church and church was like the second home or, and then you touched base at the church and then you walked to the YMCA. So when you touch base at the church, you touch base and you ask, what is it that I need to do today to help clean? We clean up whatever it is, and then we go over to the YMCA. And it, for me, I didn't know, understand why it was the same thing over and over and why we were scripted in doing so. But in the end, when you look back at it, that was the way she kept us off the streets. Mm -hmm. That was the way she kept us from getting involved with the gangs and the drugs. And I can remember when crack Hit the, hit the neighborhood in the 80s, man. And crack cocaine was devastating. And my experience was when I saw people go through it, uh, I was sheltered in the fact that my mother put me in positions where I didn't have to deal with some of those things because she kept me so busy. But, you know, th that was the reason why I think that, you know, even, even in today's, where I am in today's life, I've always felt, saw the struggle. And the only way I knew how to get out of the struggle was by witnessing what she did. And what my mother did was she was disciplined. She didn't complain. She got up and went. And she used to always say the best ability is availability. Just be available. And that's where I am today. I, and, and my brothers and sisters are, we're all built the same. I'm not a victim. I never have been a victim. If I want something, I go get it. And, and, and that's been instilled in me since I was, you know, six years old just go get it if you want it so and I had a lot of scraps my brothers you know that I had to deal with it anyway so I had to defend myself at a young age so <laughs> I get the fighter mentality yeah that's that's really interesting I think it sounds like uh to me that uh, your mom kind of set that kind of standard for you that really shaped a lot about who you were along the way and when I you know, when I think about like stories like that, I oftentimes go back to when I was when I was a school teacher, I taught for about five years in Wisconsin before moving um, and focusing more on my career and uh, my running career. And, and I remember when I was teaching, one of the first things I kind of thought of was just like, you know, you'd have a variety of students, you have the students that have like perfect home lives, and they had all the kind of the setup there to be successful, and they still had to work hard and, and do the right things. Um, but you know, there was a lot more of a kind of a, of a, of a guide there or there are multiple adults in their lives that were there to really kind of help point them in the right direction, or at least give them um, pointers as to which way to choose. And then you had students who uh, it, like, you know, their home life was not good. And uh, you know, they, they were maybe one mistake away from, you know, ruining a huge portion of their life or making a really big uphill battle for themselves. And, and a lot of times the difference between those students finding a way and not was what were they doing from three o'clock until, you know, maybe nine or 10 o'clock yeah. in the afternoon when school closed and, you know, their, their parents were maybe coming back from work late or something like that. So to hear you talk about just like that structure that your mom put in place for your life, not only in the sense that she had the community with the church and the YMCA to, to help out, but also creating that example for you is, you know, you, when you see that as a teacher, you think like, you know, those are the, those are the heroes out there. The, the unseen heroes are the people like your mom. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, look, I do a lot of inner city work and, and, you know, one of the big factors that I always look at in the inner city is, you know, the lack of education, 
And, and I've been so hyper-focused on that, just education, educating, educa educating the kids. But that, you know, for the longest time, I've been missing the point. Through the process, you, you have to educate not only the, the kids, but the parents. Mm -hmm. You know, just to be a parent, just, just show up, support. Maybe, you know, get a diet. Like a lot of these kids don't even, they go to school, Zach, and, and they don't eat. Mm -hmm. There's no fuel. And, and, and some of the things that, that you know, we're missing in, in, in as far as it's helping the inner city, yeah, education is big, but it's also an educational process to, for moms and dads. You know, I'm, I'm big on, hey, if you're a dad, you know, be responsible. Be responsible. Be in your child's life. If you're, if you're a mom, be responsible. Be in your child's life. And, and I think there's a lot of cyclical issues within the inner city that, that have to be fixed in order for the kids to get to the education side of things. And, and you, know, I, I, you know, thank God I had some of my mother in my life at a young age who showed me that direction. She showed me, she held my hand and held her kids' hands through the process. And even though we had late night homework, she got it done. We figured out a way to get it done and she was a part of that. So, you know, I, I, there's, you know, look, I can go on and on and on. You know, I've, I've been involved again in the inner city and. and planning and trying to um, be a mentor in, in so many ways, but there is just so many issues that we, we, we really have to deal with. And I think it's up to us as people just to go back and give and like just to serve. Yeah, that's really powerful. I think, um, I think like what you say and you're practicing what you preach, essentially, you knew what you knew what it took to kind of get you to where you were. And you recognize there's a path like that for probably a lot of other kids that, you know, that, that they may not find that if they don't have help from someone like yourself or, yeah. or, you know, have, have some options other than, you know, a gang or wherever they could end up if they're not left with a whole lot of choices. So, yeah, that's so true. And you know what, and to go on that, Zach, look, I, I'll say this. I, I've never accomplished anything in my life without someone else helping me. I, I, I've never done one thing in my life, not one accomplishment that I did, by, that I did alone. And I can say, I deserve all the credit. There's not, not one thing. And, I'll apply that coming out of high school and going into college. And when I first got into college at Arizona State, I was a young man who was raised by his mom, a single mom. And it took me to get into college to know what a man really was. And that man was Lovey Smith, who was my position coach, who's the head coach of the of University of Illinois now. But he was my position coach at Arizona State. Taught me how to be a man. There's one thing to know, have some discipline on the way your mom, my mother had raised me. But then when it was a strong man with a strong presence, it was different. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how the little nuances, not just opening doors, but the little nuances of how to treat people and have respect. And those are some of the things I, like the little things that I didn't know. And it took Lovey Smith to get me there. So it's the same thing in the inner city. When I go back, it's my duty to pour into these kids like, like Lovey Smith poured into me and just show them some of the little things that they're single, they're from a single parent or they don't have a father or a figure. Just show them just a piece of you that's disciplined. So I, you know, I mean, I know I'll go on all day, Zach, but you know, <laughs> as you know, that's where my heart lies. I mean, I just want to give so much there's so much more of me to give mm -hmm. yeah I think when uh when you have a situation like that where you can probably think of a couple examples early on that love you was uh the, of things that he did that he may not have even thought twice about yeah. that he just thought this is the right thing to do this is what a person in my position should do and he did it and and probably and how many like hundreds of people has he probably done that for that you know that know it themselves that he doesn't necessarily know it about and, and it all just goes back to what you said, like uh, he he wanted to do the right thing and he, he found a way to do that. And the thing I find really interesting about that, especially with uh, with younger folks, is just it doesn't always take this big, powerful, moving person or this like big this big push from someone or, you know, love. You probably didn't have to, like, get on your case all day, every day, but he did the right things at the right times that for whatever reason, just kind of set you into the motion or get you picked up on. And, and young kids, as immature as they can be at times, they're very good at recognizing those small things. Absolutely. So when adults 
I think when adults recognize that and realize it's these little things that they're going to pick up on and see and learn from and grow from, it's when you can really kind of leverage that and be a more powerful influence on, on younger, on the younger generation. Yeah. Because you're, you're all, oh, you're dead all, man. I mean, a lot of us, we grow, especially kids who grow through experiences in our lives, whether it be good or bad or, you know, positive or, or negative, you know, you grow through those experiences and, and, you know, I, of course, I have four kids and I always I know they're watching. Even when I'm thinking they're not watching, they're watching, they're listening to my language, how I carry myself, how I meet and greet people. I mean, all the little things you would think of, how I handle my, do I get up early in the morning to go work out and then go to work? Or am I laying in the house all day playing video games? I mean, those things are, your kids are watching all the time. So, you know, it's up to us as parents to set that, that model. You know, what, what, what do you want? What do you want to leave your kids? Well, for me, I want to leave this. Uh, their, their dad grinded it out. Their dad didn't just run through walls. He figured it out and opened the door before he ran through the wall. Like, I want to be that, that you know, <laughs> work hard, but work smart at the same time. And I'm always pushing those things onto my kids. And, and I think that's just the lessons that you learn. And if we, you know, again, coming out of college or coming out of high school and then going to college, the littlest things, I was just learning the little nuances from, from Coach Smith and, and watching him and the experiences, you know, again, inner city kid, not used to seeing two parents at the house. Coach Smith was married, had two kids, and I watched him be a father to his two younger kids. So it's like just through those experiences, it just taught me this is the path. This is the way I want to go in my life. Yeah, that's really powerful. I think, um, the other thing I wanted to talk around kind of around that same timeline is just like when people hear that introduction I gave you with the three-time Super Bowl champ, five-time Pro Bowler, I think they probably, the first thought is like, oh, okay, this, he was probably a, a D1 recruit, full scholarship ride, smooth sailing through college. He didn't really have to start working hard until he got to the NFL. But that wasn't really the case for you either, was it? No. You know, I, re I got recruited. So my, my issue with my grades in high school, and wasn't totally focused my senior year, junior or senior year. Just felt, felt like I was, I was getting recruited by everyone. Just felt like the next step was go play at Arizona State. And it wasn't until I had that wake-up call by uh, Arizona State and the recruiting coordinator at Arizona State was fabulous. Uh, he's still there at the school. His name is Don Bakke. Still in my life. Still a mentor in my life. But he walked me through a process. And I tell you what, man, it, Zach, probably the – one of the points in my life that I will never forget is the day that Don Bakke told me that I was not eligible to play next year. And I can't, you know, you're talking to a kid who played all sports, but football in particular, since I was seven years old, never missed a season. It was the love of my life. That, that was the love at that time. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a girlfriend. The love was football. And for him to sit me down at my old high school and say, hey, look, uh, your great GPA isn't where it needs to be. You're going to have to sit out next year. It was devastating. And first of all, I was embarrassed because I knew I was a better student. Uh, two, my, I knew the, the, what was going to happen to my mother when I had to deal with that. Um, but in the end, I, I just had to go to swallow that embarrassment and then take it from within and just take ownership in that situation. So what I ended up doing was I had to go to Arizona State for my first year as what we call a Prop 48 back then. It means you were uh, athletically ineligible, but you can go to school, get your grades up for the first semester, and then you can join the program the next year. And that's what I did. I, I shut down all the recruiting processes around the country because I wanted to go to Arizona State because Don Bakke was, you know, instrumental in, in setting the path for me and, and actually telling me the truth. And I went to Arizona State and, and for an entire year, I sat there, I sat and watched good friends of mine that I, that I played with in high school, uh, played with, played against, who were playing on Saturdays and I, I didn't, I couldn't even go to the games. I was, you know, when you're in that process and you're Prop 48, you can't go to the actual games. You have to watch it from home. So it was, it was tough. And, and I had a lot of negative 
you know, there was a lot of negative people that came at me. Oh, you're not smart enough. You're not this and this and that. And I knew I was a smart kid. I just didn't apply myself the right way. And, you know, so I set out that year uh, and then came back and played the next year. And I can tell you, man, it just, you know, and, and as you can probably tell now, I'm one that I'll find a chip now. I don't, you know, it can be whatever it is. I'm going to find that chip and put it on my shoulder. Even if you're not even trying to give me a chip, I'm going to figure it out. I need to put something on my shoulder. And I kept that chip on my shoulder the entire offseason, the season in with the, with the Sun Devils. I was back in it. They allowed me to come back around in the weight room. I got after it, man. And the next year, I played a lot. You know, I just, I just wanted to impress not only everyone else, but impress myself. And, and academically, man, I went from a kid that was, you know, struggling in high school to a three, over a 3-0 in, in college in my first year, man. So it was, for me, it was, it was <laughs> you know, I, my wife, I told my wife, yeah, I got a 3.0. She's like, yeah, I got a 4.0. But I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, hey, just trust me. From where I was, from where I came from, to where I am, that's awesome to get to that point, man. But I had to work my ass off to do it. All right, folks, I have a quick message to share with you. I have partnered with Purpose Performance Apparel to create a signature series of athletic gear. We have some great options, which include singlets, shorts, and t-shirts. Purpose Performance Apparel was my choice for a signature line because of their patented HyperMesh material. What makes HyperMesh really cool is it remains cool and still feels light as a feather even when you sweat in the hottest environments. So you can take this gear to the gym, outside, or even stay at home to do your workout. Head over to my website at zachbitter.com, that's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com, scroll to the bottom of that main page, and you can link over to the store and check out what we put together. I also have 10% off discounts for anyone who's interested in purchasing any of that stuff. Uh, so once you head to the checkout, enter ZAC10, that is capital Z-A-C-H, and the number 10 for the discount. Thanks for checking out, folks. And of course, let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. Yeah, well, and I think, too, the other thing that sometimes often gets missed with, with uh, you know, collegiate athletes, especially at the Division One level, especially at the, the, the big sports like football and basketball, where, you know, you go in there and in a lot of cases, your job is to perform on that field or that court, number one. And really the expectation beyond that in a lot of these places can be, you know, just make sure you're eligible long enough to, uh, you know, right. be able to get on the field or go on the court. And then once you're no longer, you know, have eligibility at that point, we don't really care too much about whether you had, you know, a, a year and a half worth of credits under your belt versus all four or five of them. So, you know, getting that diploma, that 3.0 GPA and, and then graduating uh, on time must have been like something that you're just really proud of because you are basically working two full time jobs in order to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It, it took me three and a half years to graduate. And it was because I had a plan, man. I, and, and again, I, I attribute that to Don Bakke, who was a recruit coordinator and Lovey Smith, who set the plan even when I wasn't playing in my freshman year. And every year against my will, because I didn't want to be around in the summertime. I wanted to go hang out like everyone else. In the summertime, I had to take a full load of classes. And it, what happens is in the mindset, and you know, again, you go back and you start thinking about things. They needed, they, they knew me. Coach Smith knew me from, from down, deep down. He knew that he had to keep me busy, similar to what my mom did. If I, if I have idle time, bad things are going to happen. So he kept me busy in the summertime. Not only did I go to summer school, but I worked through an Arizona State program. And then I went, and then we got ready for the season. So you know, it, it took me three and a half years to graduate, man. And it's one of my, you know, during the process, I always felt like because I had a plan, it was easy. I never thought school was really hard. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I will always say to Zach, and I know people probably get upset with me when I say this. <laughs> but if you're an athlete on full ride scholarship around the country, these schools give you resources. You have a multitude of tutors. You have every bit of resource that you need, which is to get an education. 
And I took advantage of all those resources. Yeah, did it suck getting up at six o'clock in the morning to go meet with your tutors? Yeah, but you had, but I had to do it. And, and, and I always felt like it was just, when I look back at my college career, I had a great time, had a lot of time, had, a, had as much fun as anyone else at Arizona State. As we all know about Arizona State. Had as much fun as I wanted to, but I just took care of my business, which made it a lot easier. And having a plan made it that much easier. So I got to, I, I, you know, look again, you know, it's not me. It was the, the, it was the Don Bakis and the Lovey Smiths who laid out the game plan for me to, to, to succeed the way I did. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think like with a lot of, with a lot of stories like that, I, I always think of like, there's probably mistakes that are being made along the way that yeah. the person learned from, and then they didn't make that mistake again. And it sounds like for you, you know, in order for your career to develop the way it did, you kind of have to make the mistakes at the right time and learn from it at the right time. So they don't negatively impact your outcome too much. And for you, it sounds like you made the mistake early enough in high school, learned from it and was like, okay, that's not going to happen again. I got something pulled from me. That's the most meaningful thing in my life. And now I've got a year to re rectify that and then kind of get back to where I want to be. And rather than being defeated by that, you took that one step back and then multiple steps forward. That's right. And it's, you know, what's the difference between, you know, it, it, I was related to, to the NFL or playing a football game. Hey, look, you, you get your butt kicked one play. Um, the next play, guess what? You have a chance to redeem yourself and make a play. I mean, you're going to have some negative plays. You're going to have some bad plays. And that's life. I mean, you're going to have some ups and downs. But if you're not learning from those mistakes, if you're not going back and, you know, the hardest part for most people, including self at, at, at times, even in my life now, is taking a hard look at my weaknesses and, and, and having the humility to say, hey, look, I'm not good at this. Whatever it is, I suck at this and I need to get better at it and recognizing it, writing it down on paper. You know, my biggest deal, and I'll just be wide open, was communicating with my wife, just having a simple conversation. And, you know, I, I'm too busy. I, I have that excuse. I'm too busy. I got to go do this. I got to do that. Look, man, I mean, find your warts because we all have these warts. And if you can just hone in on those and understand it, you, and maybe you're not going to be perfect, but try to get a little bit better at those uh, those, those uh, problems that you might be having, man, it makes you so much better, but you just got to recognize it and have the humility to, to recognize your downfalls. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, just like the timeline that we've talked about so far, and it's, it's like, we, we kind of, co we covered a little bit of your youth and then kind of your, your, your college introduction. And then, uh, you know, your, you, you ended up having a great collegiate career, obviously, and I believe you were even named like the top football player to come out of Arizona. Um, if I, if I read that correctly, and it's like, when you just think of that timeline from age 17, getting sat down and saying, Hey, look, you're not gonna be able to play football for the first year. And then would be, I guess, five years later, you're in, you, you know, you've, you've done the combine, you're in the NFL draft. And you ultimately get drafted early in the second round to the Dallas Cowboys. What is even going through your mind at that point thinking like, cause I mean, it must be like five years isn't far from your memory. So you remember what it's like getting sat down and being told that. And now all of a sudden you're going to be playing for one of, you know, the most well-recognized organizations in the football league. Yeah. You know, I can say this. Well, since I was a kid, my sister, Monica would always say, you're going to play in the NFL. And of course, you know, I, as a kid, I always thought, yeah, you know, that's my goal. I want to play in the NFL. But, you know, you, of course, you always have doubts and you always run into roadblocks and you have these ups and downs. You don't grow as fast as everyone else. And then you have these down years and whatnot. But my sister saw the passion and the passion I had as far as like losing. I was the worst loser ever. I mean, I'm throwing my helmet and my mom would be like, chill out, relax, and blah, blah, blah. But I just, it just, I just took it to heart uh, when I was a kid. But, you know, as I grew up, you know, I, I always had that chip again on my shoulder. I always had this willingness and this want to. And it was in college when I was in my sophomore year, I was sitting there watching a game with Lovey Smith. And I still had those doubts that I would actually make it to the NFL. And on, on Sundays, Lovey Smith would bring all the players, all the defensive backs to his house. And we watched 
Sunday football games. And I was sitting there watching the Arizona Cardinals play the Chicago Bears. And there was one safety, this guy's name was Mark Carrier. He played at USC, this phenomenal football player in college. And then went on to the, to the NFL and was a really good safety. And I made the comment of watching the game when there were the Chicago Bears were playing for playing against the Arizona Cardinals. And I said, you know, that guy is a really good football player. And Lovey Smith said, you're a hundred times better than that kid. And it stuck with me. It stuck with me to think, okay, well, he, and he kept going. He said, look, man, you're going to play on Sundays. You got that, that, that dog in you and the ability to play on Sunday. So don't ever think that you're not. You are going to play it. And, I, and it stuck with me for the longest time because even through my sophomore year, I went home that day and I thought about it, I thought about it. And I said, you know what? You know, if, if I'm really looking at myself, if I stay the course, maybe I'll have a shot. And that shot, you know, and then as time goes on, and as far as the recruiting process, when, when, when you're in college, you get scouts that come out. And I, I started my junior year, I started getting a lot of scouts coming out and really, you know, pumping me up and, you know, saying that I had the ability to play at the next level. But when it happened, the reality set in. When I ended up getting drafted by the Cowboys, who a team which a team I hated, uh, come in my entire childhood life. I just never liked the Dallas Cowboys, but they drafted me in the second round, and it wasn't until I heard them call my name that I said, "Man, this is this is a reality." It, it was a reality, but then it started. That's when everything started. Like for me, in my mind, it's like, okay. Here's my dream. I got drafted. Now what? And that's when I just started saying, okay, now I'm going to fight for a position. Like it, it just, it was, it was that fast. Got drafted. I want to start. And that was, that was my mindset, man. So it was a great trade for me. It was a great transition. Mix. I just, I just wanted it so much as a kid. And I finally got to, to that point. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, Along with that, another thing that I thought is really interesting about your career and just something I want to highlight, too, because I think sometimes this is something that people who aren't like super into the sport of football don't always pick up on if they just casually watch a game here and there is that you 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 kind of grew up playing uh, a linebacker position. Yeah. And ultimately, when you got drafted by the Dallas Cowboys, I believe they made it pretty clear they were drafting you to be a safety. They were yeah. drafting you to play a position that you um, didn't grow up playing, didn't necessarily perfect the way you probably did the linebacker and, and perhaps the running back position a bit in high school. But um, what is it like to like kind of hear that and know, okay, it's not going to be a situation of I've, I'm a skilled, talented athlete, therefore my skills are just going to translate over to this position overnight and then I'll just be a, I'll, I'll be a safety for my career. It's a binder worth of information that you have to get caught up on that the people you're going up against may have spent since they were in middle yeah. school and peewee football learning. So what is that like? <laughs> it was tough, man. It, that, that, so they call me a tweener. I played linebacker, like they called the rover back, devil back at, at Arizona State, which is a linebacker slash safety. And I was always close to the line of scrimmage and didn't have to. I wasn't the quarterback of the defense. But I was closer to the line of scrimmage and I made plays uh, up close. But I came out and they kept on saying that, you know, I was too small to play linebacker at the next level. Um, and I was maybe too big to play safety at the next level. So they called me a tweener. Uh, I was 227, 226. Um, but I can remember spending that time getting ready for the draft and going to the combines. And before I even went to the combines, I worked with a guy named Felipe Sparks, a kid, a friend of mine from day one. You probably heard of Jordan Sparks, a singer. Her mm -hmm. dad is Felipe. Felipe and I worked out every day to get ready uh, for, the, for the combine. And Felipe was a cornerback. He was a defensive back. And Felipe and another one of my buddies named Kevin Minifield, who both went to Arizona State, taught me how to be a defensive back in about a month and a half time. We did defensive back drills. Uh, we, we watched film. We did a little bit of everything because they knew the only way I was going to make it to the next level was going to be at the safety position. And they had back 
open my hips, what to be looking for, you know, what are the coverages and whatnot. So they poured into me, man, before the draft. And when, when the scouts came out to do all their testing and all, and they saw me put my hips and I went to the combine and it, they thought they knew instantly he can play that position. And I ended up getting drafted in the second round, but by the Cowboys. And, and it wasn't that, you know, at first I thought it was going to be harder. The, the, the physical side of it wasn't as hard as the mental part of it because I've always been close to the line of scrimmage. And now as a safety, I'm making the calls and I'm lining everybody up. I'm the quarterback of the defense and I'm normally the deepest of the deepest. And I'm the last line of defense, which was totally different. So I knew if I made a mistake, they're scoring a touchdown. So uh, the pressure was, was enormous to, to mentally get the grasp of it. But once I got there, and it, and it took me a while, even you know, getting drafted and then getting to the Cowboys, I didn't start my first year. I was a special teams guy, and I was what they call the nickel guy. So I came in and covered the slot receivers and the tight ends and whatnot. But they didn't allow me to start because they knew mentally I just wasn't there. So my first year – was a learning process. And then beginning of my second year, I was a starting safety and it had been for 12 years straight. Wow. Yeah. That, that's an awesome story. I think uh, it just, just thinking about how like there's that component, both physical and mental, psychological, all those things that go into kind of finding who's going to be the right person for the spot is yeah. such an interesting process. I think the coaches have to go through and just the, the way they must think about that stuff. And then at the level of risk of making the wrong decision in that, in that, uh, you know, in a league like the NFL is, is gotta be, you know, oh. a, a stressful endeavor. <laughs> it is. You know, and you know why it's so stressful is because the talent level in the NFL, once you get into the NFL, the talent level is minute. I mean, the guy that's playing right next to you is just as talented. The guy that's playing for the Packers or the Detroit lions the talent level is so close that what separates you are two things, the mental aspect of the game and availability. Those are the two things. Because if, if you know athletically, we're all about the same level, how mentally tough am I? Am I? If I'm mentally tougher than you, if I'm staying extra to watch extra film, if I'm overcoming mentally, I'm overcoming some of the little knickknack injuries. Well, I jam my fingers up. I got a, a sprained ankle or got a bruise on my back or whatnot. If I can mentally overcome those things and be available, that's when you have a separation. That's where the separation begins. And I think that's, you know, for me, that's, that's my, been my mentality is, yeah, we're all about the same athletically, but I'm just going to outwork you. You know, and that was, and that, and I know, I knew that from watching guys when I first came in, like a Michael Irvin, a Troy Aikman, uh, an Emmett Smith. I'm watching high-profile players, but what really attracted me to those guys were the mental edge that they kept and how they took care of their bodies and how they were available to play on Sundays. Yeah, yeah. You you are certainly surrounded by by a set of folks who uh, I think are are household names at this point, including yourself. So it's uh it's an interesting and it's an interesting dynamic and, and a lot happening in a short period of time. And to kind of add to that as well is your rookie year, um, your team won a Super Bowl. <laughs> so now if we want to add to that, we can think, okay, here's 17 year old Darren Woodson sitting in high school being told by the recruiter, he's going to have to sit out a year. Now we're less than six years later, you're in a locker room with a group of other, you know, other like high caliber athletes, hitting that that peak of the sport the thing that all of you dreamt about when you're playing you know pop warner earlier on high school college and all that stuff and and you're there as a rookie winning it you i'm guessing you look around and you see okay they're not all rookies here some of these guys have been here for 10 plus years and have been waiting for this moment what's that like to kind of like soak all that in and then ultimately say hey i got a whole career ahead of me yet i can't let this all get to my head i want to win a few more of these or i want to yeah, get back to this yeah. you know well, i came onto a team where we had a lot of different egos and a lot of different personalities on that football team and, and i could rattle off names you'd be like oh yeah charles haley yeah, a lot of crazy <laughs> on that team so that's one thing you know the one thing i noticed when i first got here into Dallas as a Dallas Cowboy. The team had, was 11 and five the year before and they lost in a second round of the playoffs. But they came right back the next year. So I got drafted the offseason program 
we had a hundred percent turnout for the for the offseason program. That means the veterans that lived in California or lived all across the country, they didn't go home. They stayed here to work out as a team. And that started in March. So they got eliminated in January. They had about a month off March. They started, they started getting going. And you could see it. You just knew. When I walked in that locker room, I just knew the personalities. And they were so hungry. And all they talked about was one thing. Win the NFC East. That's all they said. They didn't talk about going to the you know, next level, uh, to the NFC Championship game, going to the Super Bowl. Win the NFC East was the goal. And that's what we talked about the entire offseason. That's what, that's, that, were, that was our goal throughout the season. And we got there and then we marched on. I just always, I mean, this was a special place in the early 90s because we had a head coach. And again, it goes back. We can, again, we talk about players. We can talk about, but when you start talking about leadership and, got, and people that are, are, are put in positions to lead and watch them go through these processes, that's, that, that to me is the reason why we're a championship team because we had the best coaching staff in all the football that prepared us mentally for each and every week. And we didn't get in, get in the way of ourselves. So when we ran, against, ran up against a team like the Packers, who I know you love, Zach, <laughs> we, we just were mentally, we were mentally tougher than those teams. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we're on a good thread here, I think, with the mental and physical side of this sport. And there's one more area I want to take a look at here that I found out yesterday when I was doing a little digging in. Um, it, the, the hurdles didn't, didn't never end, right? You're always finding things that you have, to, you have to overcome. It's never a smooth sailing ride. And, and for you, I think another one that, uh, that stuck out to me was your, uh, your second year. So you're, you're kind of trending towards becoming a starter now. And Early on in the preseason, I believe you guys were playing the Minnesota Vikings and, and you broke your arm in a preseason yeah. game, which is like the worst nightmare, I would guess, for an NFL player. And I can speak from experience, the worst nightmare as a fan of a team is when one of their you know, promising players or big, big names or something like that gets hurt in the preseason because you're like, ah, oh, they got hurt and it didn't even count for anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you, you ended up getting onto the field um, perhaps a little earlier than what anyone would have expected, given, given the circumstance. Can you talk, tell us a little bit how that kind of like the emotions behind finding out, I just broke my arm, what's going to happen to this season? Well, I, well, I can tell you how I found out. I heard the crack when we <laughs> a preseason game. And it, and it was friendly fire, Zach, that broke my arm. You know, I was running down on special teams and I was blocking someone and I had another one of my players named Kenny Gant. As I was blocking the player, Kenny Gant tried to finish the guy off and actually hit my arm instead of the other player. Um, so when that happened, man, it was, of course, the emo I'm coming into that year as the starter. Um, I know I'm the starter going into the preseason games because Jimmy Johnson had basically made mention after, our, after the Super Bowl game, the year following year, he said, hey, you're my guy, told the media, he's my starter next year at safety position. So uh, to break my arm the first time, first, first or in that preseason game, man, it was devastating uh, to me because I'd worked so hard to, to get to this point. And it wasn't just the fact that I've worked so hard. The competition was thick, man. I mean, if you missed a game, the next guy was coming up, period, because we were just that deep. So you know, again, availability is the key to, you know, to have to, to a lot of people's success, including myself as a football player. So I, I sat out for, I ended up having an operation. They put a plate in the arm. Uh, they put a, a cast on me. And for a couple of weeks during the preseason game, uh, during the preseason, I couldn't play. Um, and the first game of the season, I actually practiced with the team traveled with the team, dressed out, and I wasn't even going to play. All I had is big cast on my arm with this big pad. And we're in Washington, and one of our safeties went down. And guess what? Jimmy Johnson looked down and said, hey. Get that club out there. Get that club <laughs> out there. Brother. And I went out there, man, and 
uh, had a really good day. Played the rest of the season with a big cast tomorrow. And everyone knew me around the league as the guy with the big club. Because uh, I wasn't shy about swinging the club either because there's so much pad on it. <laughs> but uh, that's how I was known throughout the league that, that first year. But, yeah, so, it, you know, it, it could have really set me back. Um, just thank God that, you know, you know, the circumstances were where they were, and, and Jimmy believed in me to, 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 to even dress me out and, and have me ready for that game, man. But uh, I just didn't – you know, look, it was devastating. I just didn't, I just would not let it hold me down. I kept on trying to practice and get through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just a, a cool story that kind of fits in with a, with a storied career. And, um, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson, I think uh, he had a reputation as being a very tough coach. Yeah. Uh, um, you, you were, I believe under his coaching for a couple of years before the Mm -hmm. Cowboys switched, what was it like kind of, you know, you've, you obviously had some success under, under Jimmy. So what's it like then finding out, okay, we're going to go a different direction. Does this mean something different for me? Does this, what, like a little bit of uncertainty thrown into the following season, I would imagine. Yeah, it was, it was rough, man. It was rough in the sense that I think all of us, and you can you could talk to any of the guys that were playing in the early 90s, we, we understood where we were in history. We had won back-to-back championships uh, and didn't feel like we were dropping off. We didn't feel like we could even get better. Um, the team that was closest to us as far as talent-wise was the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, but we had beat them the first, you know, back-to-back. NFC championship games and you know it's hard it's you know it's really one of the things that that Zach's for for years has been really hard discussion to have is is that you know when you make when you build a team and Jimmy built this team the goal is to to take advantage of the opportunity that's right in front of you because we all know that window begins to close with age and as your team starts to age that window starts to close we just felt like we could have won at least four or five championships. And I firmly believe we could have won four straight uh, with Jimmy Johnson as the head coach. Uh, Jimmy got fired. Jerry Jones fired Jimmy after winning back-to-back championships. And I thought at that time, it was just unbelievable to think that some the egos could get in the way of history, that we could allow egos to determine where we are as a football team because that team was primed and ready to win three straight championships and uh, you can ask any of the guys that that I play with they'll tell you the same thing it was devastating to see Jimmy go whether you like Jimmy or you didn't like him you knew that he was a great leader Uh, he knew how to push our buttons he knew how to control uh, the guys in that locker room uh, was a very good at situational football, managing the clock, doing all the little things it took. And, you know, I, I just didn't – once we lost Jimmy, we were not the same team, period. It just – we didn't – the accountability wasn't there. Um, the pressure that he put up, placed on us during the week wasn't there anymore. Guys got loose. Uh, the focus wasn't the same at practice. We had a lot more – turmoil, uh, in-house turmoil that we had to try to deal with and overcome. So, yeah, it was, it was a tough situation for, for, for everyone. And he ended up losing the NFC Championship game um, uh, the, the next year. And then the following year ended up actually winning. I don't know how we won the, the Super Bowl that year because we were not I, – I didn't feel like we were the best team in the NFL that year. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just interesting to kind of hear how, like, you know, you have this, this setup where, you know, you have, was it a 52 man roster uh, yep. when you get down to the regular season and, you know, you remove, and then you have the coaching staff, obviously you move one of those pieces and it can just like really just change the dynamic from the psyche. Um, you know, and that's, that's not even taking into the account, like any type of like structural changes that a new coach is going to make from a, from a philosophical standpoint too. But um yeah, I mean, people, I think they just don't always think about that stuff. They think some of these pieces are more interchangeable than they actually are. They're not. And it's a 53-man roster. So as a 53-man roster, one of the things that you always know is you, who we always hear are the, the mainstays, the Tom Brady's. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, you hear about superstar running back or a superstar wide receiver, or maybe a lineman. You hear about these guys that maybe play long careers, well, you know, 10, 9, 10 years in the league or whatnot, and they become mainstays. What we don't see are the guys that are averaging three years because the average life of a football player is about three years. Actually, it's like 2.5 to three years now. But some of those young guys, the guys that are running down the field on special teams, mean so much to the dynamic of the football team. And it's not just about how they play on Sunday. It's Monday in the locker room, Monday through Saturday in the locker room, how they handle themselves, how they have accepted their roles within the team, uh, how you don't need to pamper these guys, how they get it, get up and they get you fired up. Even though you're one of the stars on the team, they're getting you fired up. There's so many little nuances within the, the makeup of a locker room that enable you to be successful. And it's normally those guys, those special teamers, or those backup players, who are the ones that bring that personality through and through um, throughout the week. So there are so many nuances in the setup of a football team. But again, I, you know, we, we always had our star players that played well, but those guys that were those mid-level players, special team guys, man, they meant so much. And, it, and, and I'll say this. The great teams, the Bill Belichick teams that you watch, the Andy Reeds and, and those great coaches that you see around the league, just watch all three phases. Because they're going to play all three, set, uh, three phases at the same level of intensity. Some teams don't play the special teams the same way they play offense or defense, and they're not as balanced. You look at great coaches, the, the, the John Harbaugh's, you're going to see consistency across all levels, all three phases of the game. Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, Darren, I want to make sure I'm mindful of your time. Uh, but I do want to ask a one more question kind of in, in regards to your career and just, or, or even more so kind of your continuation of careers, I think we can safely say yeah. at this point, is, uh, you know, when you think of the life of a professional athlete, um, especially in some of the big sports like football, basketball, baseball, hockey, and those sorts that, you know, you, you, you're on like this big stage in front of uh, millions of people at times. And uh, you, you, you get to the end of the career, you know, a lot of times in the mid thirties, you know, maybe if you have a really long year, you can push up into the 40 years, years of age. At the end of all that, you probably feel like you've got the life experience of two or three people who lived a long life, but you're maybe not even halfway to the end of your life at that point. What is it like to say, okay, all right, this phase or this chapter of my life is over. And it was a big chapter. Uh, what is next and how do I put myself into a scenario where I can still be fulfilled, still enjoy, still get up excited in the morning uh, and and kind of you know turn that page so to speak. Yeah, and, and it's the big exactly. You just hit on it, man. It's one of the hardest transitions for, and, I, and people shouldn't feel sorry for NFL players or, or professional players. Say hey, we we lived our dream at an early age, but you're talking about you know myself. I retired at 36 years old, and up to that point, you know my main focus was you know, my family and the profession that I played. So I wasn't a guy I was out there looking for multifamily business or commercial real estate or a software company. Those aren't my focuses. My first focus was being the best that I could possibly be for the Dallas Cowboys. So, you know, through that process, you're, you're behind. So when you retire, you're behind in effect. And you start to see a lot of the players who played long, played football for a long time, and then now they're transitioning. They go through a depression. They go through um, isolation because for the longest time we've been at this level and you've been playing, doing something that you love to do for so long. And then when it's taken away from you, life does not end. You have to get up the next day and make a transition and stay busy in doing something. I don't care how much money you've made emotionally you have to go find the next whatever it may be the next challenge uh in your life for us as pro athletes that is our downfall is trying to figure out what that is and for me i i had to go through what saved me was the fact that after retiring after 13 years at 36 years old the one thing that was waiting for me was espn as an analyst 
So it kept me around the game. So I jumped right in. I retired. The next day I was at ESPN as an analyst. And it kept me engaged with, with football. Uh, it was another career that I was passionate about. And at the same time, I was at ESPN, I started to get into commercial real estate and I started to think about other things in my life outside of the sports world. And, and that's where I got engaged. And, 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 but, it, but it takes that. It takes you to fall back in love with something else and take on another challenge. But in order to get to that challenge, you have to understand that you don't know a whole lot about whatever it may be. In my case, it was commercial real estate. I had zero clue about commercial real estate. But what I did was I just humbled myself. I went out and I researched it. I got with uh, some good friends of mine that were in the business. Uh, at times I just felt like naked in the fact that I, was, I, I didn't know. So I just continuously asked questions. I read books, I sat down. I went through that whole learning curve again like I was gonna play safety all over again uh, for the Dallas Cowboys. But you know what it took was just to stand back and say, I don't know, get with the right group, have some humility about yourself and grind it out. And that's what I end up doing and making that transition. The, the, the issue that I've seen through, throughout the years with guys who've retired in any sport and the conversations I've had with them is that we're expecting the same treatment. And for any kid that's out there listening right now, if your goal is to play a sport or go and be a professional athlete, if you had the chance to go to school if you have the chance to get knowledge and wisdom, get it. Because when it ends, when the football ends or basketball ends or whatever sport ends, we have to find a way to fall back on that foundation. And for me, it was my college degree in criminal justice and business that I was able to fall back in because I knew how hard it was to work there. And then I was okay to work and grind it out to learn uh, another, another vertical, which was commercial real estate. Awesome. Yeah. I think uh, it just highlights just, you know, how, how, how interesting it is to be able to talk to a person like you, Darren, where, you know, you have these goals and you're just not afraid to go after them. And yeah. you know, there's, there, there's something about, you know, setting a big goal, maybe a goal that you don't necessarily always find is reachable throughout the course of the process. And then ultimately reaching it, that really does open up doors in your own mind about what you think you're capable of in other areas. And I think that's just really interesting to kind of see, um, not only your, your football career, but then your ESPN career, and then what you're kind of taking on now with commercial real estate and the Darren Woodson show as kind of another chapter to, to what's already been a, a pretty cool story to follow for me personally. And um, I do want to share one quote that, uh, that I found yesterday I thought was really interesting. And partly because, like we said, as a Packer fan, I've, I've really much learned to respect this man as well, <laughs> even though he broke some Packer hearts in his days. Brian Erlacher said that, uh, referring to you, he was, he was the guy that I think made the Dallas Cowboys defense go. I know they were good up front. They had Ken Norton in the middle and everything, but Darren Woodson to me was a beast. My favorite player of all time. Yeah. Brian Erlacher, um, he's, he, he's not, he's not a second string player. <laughs> so for him to say, uh, uh, that you are his favorite player of all time when he had essentially every player to pick from, uh, has got to be something that that it feels good for someone like yourself to, to think that your career made that big of an impression on a guy who also had a very historic career. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing about that is we were coached by the same coach and Lovey Smith, who my story goes back to. Mm -hmm. uh, and early, he coached Erlacher for a number of years in Chicago, but a uh, phenomenal football player. You know, you know what the one surprise I do have, Zach, is that you're quoting a Chicago Bear. You're a Packers fan. <laughs> quoting a Chicago Bears linebacker, man. I didn't test you, man. Are you serious? Are you sure you're a Packer fan? Well, I haven't lived there for five years now, so maybe I'm losing my <laughs> cheese card, should we call it? <laughs> or maybe it's that we're ranked ahead of them right now this season, so I'm a little yeah. uncomfortable saying if they were on top of the division, that quote probably wouldn't have made the show. <laughs> I would have dug something up from Don Beebe, maybe, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. That well, Darren, awesome. I th I th thank like, you so yeah. much for, for taking some time. I do want to give you a chance to kind of share uh, any like social media handles, uh, 
anything specific about your podcast that you'd like to let the listeners know so they can go find out what you're up to? Yeah, so the, the podcast is the Darren Witchin Show. We're, wherever you can find podcasts, whether it be Apple or where, where, wherever you can find podcasts, that's what the Darren Witchin Show is. Uh, man, we on our show, what we want to do is we the goal is to follow the journey and to hear the stories and hear the ups and downs and the obstacles and understand how mentally uh, how folks have gotten through uh, some of the issues in, in their lives. And it's just... Trust me, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal to hear the stories. Uh, I'm surrounded by two co-hosts that, that dig in, um, who have a ton of energy, who are family men, simply like myself, love God. Uh, but at the same time, man, we just, we, we want to hear the journeys and we want to impress upon, whether it be our young listeners or our older listeners, that you're going to go through some things. And there's going to be some positives and there's going to be some negatives, but there's so many people that have been able to overcome those just through mental strength. And that's what we're, that's what we're, we're trying to push out there as far as our podcast is that mental edge and what it takes uh, to be successful in life. Very cool. We'll definitely link that into the show notes, folks. So if you want to go check out some of the episodes by Darren and his group, uh, and I definitely recommend doing so, you learn a lot about some interesting people and it's not just sexes and no football players. It's all sorts of different folks, including, including the opposite of the spectrum myself who went on there and talked yeah. about running hundred miles, which was phenomenal, man. <laughs> but I tell you what, if, if, you, if your listeners are out there, go listen to Zach's uh, episode on the Darren Wilson show. Phenomenal. And it was, you know, look, man, we could talk about me all the day long, but the mental part of your makeup is what we've been talking about throughout our episodes is is overcoming those things and, and taking on taking on the challenges and, and again being available to self and to others man and being in, being an inspiration at the same time zach so we appreciate you brother awesome well it means a lot thank you so much no problem have a good one easy take care darren hey folks human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth we are looking to take on some new sponsors so if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zachbitter on Instagram at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.